And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hope you guys are having a terrific week. Uh, real fun show today. I was joined by my friend Jim Garrity from National Review. It's always a great time talking to Jim. Uh, we we covered a lot. We actually we covered a lot of stuff today. We talked about the end of uh, Team Trump's uh, legal proceedings. Uh, we we uh, we actually did a deep dive on uh, the the future of the GOP. What the post Trump GOP is going to look like. It was it was really interesting there. Uh, and we also took a look at uh, Joe Biden's horrible <laughs> cabinet picks. So, uh, yeah, fun, fun stuff there all around. Uh, guys, before we get to Jim, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're on iTunes, guys, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Podcast. All right. Without further ado, the great Jim Garrity. <laughs> All right, guys, we are here at the great Jim Garrity. Jim, how have you been? Brady, thank you for having me on. We are heading into the holiday season, and uh, I'm attempting to be jolly. It's a little tougher this year. It's not been a good year for a whole bunch of us, but uh, the prospect of 2020 coming to an end, if nothing else, should make us all feel a little better. Yeah, we're in the home stretch. Uh, I mean, I I guess we all thought uh, Frank Gore was in the home stretch of his career about 10 years ago, though, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you never know. Oh, did the Jets play this year? I thought all the games were canceled for <laughs> the pandemic. But, uh, they they canceled the professional football, but they. Uh, yeah, it's see, I'm a Steelers fan, so it's been a couple rough weeks for me, but I'm not going to complain oh, with you on the show. I, I can't, oh, I can't. I mean, they're eleven and two. In a row. That must be terrible. <laughs> oh man, I've I've only been through that every week this year. Yeah, let me, let me just remind all the Steelers fans that uh, you know people have it worse off than we do, and eleven and two is still a very good record. So. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's jump right into the news of the week, uh, Jim. I, I I've pretty much ignored on this podcast the the constant stream of lawsuits and accusations, and I don't know what you want to call it, post election festivities <laughs> from the, the Trump team this this past month, month and a half. Not because I I don't think that Democrats cheat or attempt to cheat. I mean, there's been a long history of Democrats a- attempting election fraud and 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 whatnot in in places like Philly and Detroit. I mean, heck, ha- half of my own city council. I don't know if you ever if this. Uh, crossed your radar over the summer but half of my own city council here in toledo were hauled off in handcuffs by the fbi for taking bribes so i'm very sympathetic to the argument that uh you know democrats tend to be corrupt but you know as i read through all of uh all the accusations from all the all the allegations from the trump team i didn't see anything that was going to really make a difference obviously the courts agreed and the electoral college agreed and voted and it's over so uh we can all move on now but the president uh is is insisting that we don't move on so I don't know. How's this going to turn out? Is this going to transition seamlessly into a a 2024 bid? Or uh, how long is the president going to keep this this crusade going, I guess? Yeah, Brady, those are some really good questions. I think one of the things that really nags at me about this post-election process is that it seemed pretty clear, if not by election night, we didn't really have a clear winner that evening. But by as you know, we got to that 90 some percent of precincts reporting or 90 some percent of the expected vote in 
that Biden's margins were too large outside the margin of fraud. Now, here's the thing. Fraud exists. The Heritage Foundation has a really good database of all of the convictions of voter fraud in every state, and they categorize it and goes back years. If you go through that database, you'll notice, though, that most of these cases are involving a handful of votes here, a dozen votes there, somebody who voted in two places, uh, they, you know, in another case. You're not talking about tens of thousands of votes or, you know, or hundreds of thousands of votes. And in these uh, four, you know, four or five big states, the, you know, the Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Nevada, Arizona, and by some people's measure, Wisconsin. Uh, by Michigan, by the way, it was like 3%, so it really wasn't that close. Um, the, the margin was at least 10,000 votes, and you just weren't going to find 10,000 fraudulent votes. I'm glad that certain states, like Georgia, uh, did a recount. I, you know, it was within the margin of that recount, and I'm, I'm generally supportive of recounts. I also note that recounts, generally, you don't see changes of more than a couple hundred votes uh, in this. And it's, I think it's frustrating because you, there are legitimate arguments to be made that are not the types that would not necessarily change the outcome of the election. I don't think it's good that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, hey, if an absentee ballot comes into the mail up until Friday after the election and it's not postmarked or the postmarked is smudged and illegible, you should still accept it and you should still count it. I believe they decided to count them. And oh, by the way, that was, that was a, the num- total number of ballots that were in that category was smaller than Biden's margin. So if even if every one of them was a Biden vote and you right. said, you know what? We're going to discount all of them, and they were counted. But if you somehow managed to convince judges to say, no, those shouldn't be counted, Biden would still win the state. Um, But nonetheless, I think that there should be one deadline for when you have to get your ballot in. And if they want it to be election day, fine. Uh, Whatever it's going to be, I'm going to have people casting ballots in person, and I'm going to have people casting ballots by mail in the same, at that same deadline. Because once the polls close, I want the total universe of potential votes resolved. Right? right. I want that to be a clear number, because then when you're checking the votes, if you if your total number of votes for each candidate doesn't match the total number of ca- ballots cast and you don't you know, it doesn't also not match the number of, say, spoiled ballots or people who left that part of the that part of the ballot blank. Well, then, you know, there's a counting error. Right. And that's, you know, so I want one clear deadline for everybody. But this is a separate issue then was Trump. Uh, cheated out of an election victory or was fraudulent votes put Biden over the top. No, they were not. Uh, They've had copious uh, chances in court to make this argument, to lay this out. They have not done it. Uh, And I think the cause of, you know, what it struck me as good election reform, i.e. requiring that one, you know, deadline and such, is seriously undermined by the Sidney Powells and Lynn Woods of the world. Oh, my goodness. By the way, Brady, let's just kind of observe that if Lynn, I, I was not terribly familiar with Lynn Wood before this current controversy. I looked I, him up. I, I wish I still wasn't, to be honest. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, read about his representation of um, uh, the the gentleman who was accused of being the bomber at the Olympics in Atlanta. I'm blanking on his name. Clint Eastwood just did a movie about him. Right, right, right. But anyway, Lynn Wood was one of his lawyers. And Lynn Wood has a... Uh, you know, is fairly respected in Georgia legal circles. He he was not not known necessarily a uh, uh, you know stark raving lunatic who belongs in an asylum. Um, but Lynn Wood has more or less showed up and is telling Georgia Republicans, "Hey, this election was stolen. The Venezuelans and the U.S. Army raided the servers of the company in Germany and all kinds of crazy nonsense stuff. The deep states involved in it. You know." 
But he's also saying to Georgia Republicans, you should not vote in this upcoming runoff elections for Senate. And it appears that you've got large crowds of people who are saying, okay. Madness. At that point, if somebody could just show up and convince you not to vote and you agree, you have serious problems. And if the Republican, if this represents a significant chunk of the Republican Party's base, we don't know how the Georgia runoffs are going to go. I, at this point, it looks very close. I don't think any outcome would really surprise me other than a landslide one way or the other. But if, God forbid, a significant number of Georgia Republicans listen to Lynn Wood and say, ah, the whole thing is, you know, cheated by hackers into the machines and the software and the algorithm and all kind of stuff, and they decide not to vote, then the Republican Party has really kind of ceased to function. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a, that, that you, you, you don't really, you, you can't influence politics if somebody can show up out of nowhere and tell your voters not to vote and they listen to them. Right. I, I have to assume Georgia Republicans can see through these these charlatans down there with uh, Lynn Wood and uh, who's the other one? The, the Kraken lady. Sidney Powell, yes. She doesn't strike me as a very serious person, but you know, not not just the, the uh, hopefully the, this nonsense doesn't affect the, the Georgia runoffs, but also, I mean, there's going to be a lot of lawsuits in the coming years regarding you know, the legality of, of mail-in voting and all of this. Um, and the Trump team, <laughs> Donald Trump did nobody a, a service by hiring a, a clown car of a legal team. I, you know, I, yeah. I, obviously, I never expected the, the outcome of the election to be overturned. Uh, but I was hoping they'd find something, so, you know, substantive that could help in future lawsuits to maybe, you know, make sure we actually have an election day, not an election year <laughs> next time around. I But... They got nothing, man. They got nothing. I, I, I they yeah. did nobody any favors on the when, right. When you see the the numbers turn around like one in fifty, one of the things that's worth noting is that those few victories that they, the one or two victories that they did get, it was about allowing uh, Republican vote observers to stand close enough to where people were counting votes. Uh, because of the coronavirus restrictions, people tried to keep them very far away. They couldn't really see how the vote counting was going. They sued to get it within six feet, within the CDC guidelines, and they won a few cases on that. So we should give them a, uh, a small morsels of credit for the few victories that they did get in the legal system. But by and large, they got their butts handed to them in the legal And most cases, courts were telling them, you know, your evidence is hearsay. Your affidavits are not persuasive. Like there were, you know, circuit court judges, state judges, local judges, so, you know, state Supreme Court judges. And of course, they went all the way up to the Supreme Court on Friday. They had, you know, everyone deserves their day in courts, as they say. But Trump campaign had, and, and related Republican Party lawyers and I guess apparently Sidney Powell and, and Lynn Wood are not officially Trump campaign lawyers, although at times Trump has described them as his lawyers. And they certainly, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood certainly act like, in their minds, they're acting on behalf of the president. How about the uh, Rudy how about Giuliani the drunk, and Jenna how, Ellis may feel differently? Yeah, how about the drunk <laughs> blonde woman up in Michigan? Is she officially a part of the team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I didn't catch her fact, name, but yeah. she seemed like a real winner. Yeah, the fact that um, I mean, like, if you genuinely have this, the first thing is like I, I kept seeing people who would like put these allegations of fraud on social media, and I know it feels like um, Mark Zuckerman. And the guy who runs Twitter and the people who run YouTube, I know it feels like they run the country sometimes, but they really don't. They don't actually have the legal power to overthrow. The only person who can say, hey, these votes are fraudulent and they should not be counted is a judge. 
And so any of this evidence, and it, it all should be presented in a courtroom, doesn't do you any good to put it up on, on social media anywhere. And a whole bunch of people who, who I, you're right, charlatans is a good word, kept running around and saying, oh, I heard about, what was it, you know, ballots in Lake Erie and, and you know, uh, the I saw somebody in a Biden-Harris truck bringing in crate loads of ballot. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you know here's the thing. If you're going to be involved in a massive effort to steal the election, wouldn't you get a different truck? <laughs> Doesn't that seem a little like even by the steel, even if you think Democrats are dumb, that seems pretty, uh, pretty implausible. Yeah. So, look, the president didn't want to believe that he lost. And look, you know, you don't have to be this particular president. Like no president likes admitting that they lost. Defeat is is bitter. Defeat is uh, depressing and dispiriting and, and enraging. And I, I, I get all that. If the president needed a day or two to kind of work through the ramp, okay, fine, you know. But like we're now, you know, this is this is we're now in mid-December. This went out the entirety of the post-election uh, uh, process, and the evidence just wasn't there. They kept having their opportunity to present it in court, and the judges, you know, judges appointed by Trump did not find it uh, persuasive in the slightest. Um, so, like, how does this end? Look, it ends with you know Joe Biden taking the oath of office on January twentieth, and a new administration taking power. Um, a by that point, we will know who won the Georgia runoffs. And, you know, right now, I think it's probably a good chance Republicans win at least one, but I wouldn't guarantee it. So you have a Republican controlled Senate, but narrowly divided. You have a Democrat controlled House that is narrowly divided. And there's potential, at least, for um, divided government forcing each side to make compromise and maybe getting a, a slightly better uh, outcome than we would have if it had been, a, you know, the Democrats sweeping into power, all, you know, House, Senate and presidency. Yeah, I, um, I do love me some gridlock. So that's uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I say, the, the other thing is that the country has big problems that are not necessarily ideological right now. Left, right or center. You, you probably should be you know, like the, the pandemic is a really bad, you know, really bad spot right now. It's fantastic that we're getting people vaccinated. It's fantastic that it rolled out this week. Um, we've got a ways to go. You know, that, that we are uh, the, the Pfizer one is authorized. The Moderna one, you know, you and I are talking on. Wednesday, they think probably by the end of the week, the FDA will give approval of that one. Oxford is a few weeks behind, and Johnson & Johnson, I think they're wrapping up the last the last recruits for the third stage of testing for that one. So week by week, month by month, things are going to get better, but we still have a long ways to go. It sounds like they might have a deal on uh, pandemic relief funding. We'll, we'll see if that, it feels like we've had a lot of false starts on this one. Um, but, you know, come January, when, you know, President-elect Bi President Biden becomes President Biden, the country's still going to have big problems. And a lot of those problems will start and be, you know, centered around the pandemic and the fact that because of it, people cannot engage in the usual economic activity that they usually do. Gathering in groups, going into shops and restaurants and bars at full capacity, going on planes, going on trips, uh, you know, I mean, basically an entire year more or less the entire U.S. tourism sector just got knocked down. I mean, right. they, there were some people who traveled, some people drive, but, you know, much fewer uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, so to speak. I, I'd be remiss. to tell people to stay. Sorry, sorry. You good? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I'd, I'd be remiss if, before we move on, if I didn't push back yeah. a little bit on the, the left and, and the, I mean, another reason why I, I haven't spent a lot of time on the, the post-election stuff is is because I, I, I also can't really muster the outrage for— uh, I can't really be too upset about what Trump is uh, doing. Obviously, his behavior seems pretty irresponsible to me, but uh, I guess it's just kind of how I compartmentalize things after the election. I'm like, okay, Biden's going to be president, moving on. I I 
judge Trump by uh, the same measure I Trump his co- I, I measure his colleagues, and that's the the forty three other former presidents. Yes, forty three, not forty four. Grover Cleveland only counts once, guys. That's been driving me crazy <laughs> since I was a kid. But you know, so it's like uh, you see from a lot of the never Trump pundits, and then obviously people on the left. You know, it's the daily op eds. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. He won't concede. It's unprecedented. He's he's delegitimizing the presidency. I mean, well, first I'm a libertarian, so that you know, I think we could do. <laughs> we, I'm fine with delegitimizing the presidency after eight years of the entire culture and the media worshiping Barack Obama. I mean, I think politicians are a lot closer to, you know, a, the town drunk or a bear riding a unicycle than they are a savior. So it's fine. It's fine if the guy uh, delegitimizes the presidency. But you know, I. I, I judge Trump by his he's he's about to be a former president. You know, there's only been 43 other former presidents. And of, of course, Trump's behavior, like a lot of his behavior over his entire life, <laughs> has been irresponsible post-election. But I'd say, I don't know, streaming birth of a nation at the White House is more irresponsible or interning Japanese-Americans or heck, I'd say the Iraq war is, is quite a bit more or drone bombing weddings, <laughs> for instance, a lot more irresponsible behavior than than Trump refusing to concede so i guess that's another reason why i haven't really touched on it too much because it's like I, I i didn't really give much credence to the allegations themselves and that i can't really muster up the outrage on the other side either so i've kind of just left it alone yeah brady this might be an area where like you know you and i agree on vast swaths of the world this might be one where i'll push back on you a little bit and just Go make the it. observation absolutely the, the you know the, the interesting the irony of all this and how you know angry trump is, is the possibility of losing not being in the white house is that trump does, you know for four years has had very little interest in the actual governing part of the job uh he loves the rallies he loves the campaigning he loves the pomp and circumstance and and all of that but the actual certainly you know he's, he certainly does not like sitting down and negotiating with leaders in congress no right? he does not like um his, his entire agenda since republicans lost uh, control of the House has pretty much been not judicial nominations and things that he could do through executive order. Yeah, he's got a very uncooperative, you know, the Democrats in the House hate his guts. Uh, they open, you know, was it Rashid Tlaib who said at the beginning, we're going to impeach the MF or mm-hmm. uh, like, yeah, no, granted, working with this Congress is going to be very, very difficult. But he never was that interested in, you know, the legislative details to begin with. Um, you know, his his entire mindset has been this is just kind of an extension of another reality show. And for much of his presidency, with the stock market and the economy booming and, uh, uh, you know, we, we had, you know, actually exceptionally few casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq and, uh, uh, you know, drone striking Soleimani and the fall of ISIS, things actually were doing okay. You could actually live with President Trump tweeting and being angry about what was on cable news and, and all that kind of stuff for a really long stretch. And then the pandemic hit. Right. And this president, who had not really faced a crisis of, of you know enormous magnitude in his first three years, suddenly was hit with what I think probably should count as the certainly yeah you, you pick your measuring stick. It's certainly the biggest public health crisis since probably the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, you can argue you know whether you want to compare it to 9/11, whether you want to compare it to the Great Recession. Uh, I mean th- there are there are a lot of things that happen in American life where you can by and large out and ignore it if you want to. If you want to spend more time thinking about Kim Kardashian or sports or gardening or that's fine. Most of the time, you know, the deficit is not going is not Godzilla and it's not going to come across a hill and stomp on your house. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of problem, you know, problems in you know, o- Obamacare. If your insurance was not disrupted, well, then you probably didn't feel all that strongly about it. 
Um, if you, if, but you know, but the pandemic is like the first thing that came along that touched the lives of just about everybody. I'm just about everybody in America and just about everybody in the uh, planet. Now, it didn't, you know, it's not, this is not where I'm going to get into the, you know, singing celebrities from their luxury mansions in Hollywood. <laughs> we're all in this together. No, you're not. You know, different people were affected very, very differently by this pandemic. But this was, uh, unless you were Bill Gates, you, you really didn't have too many opportunities to not have this affect your lives. Businesses were just closed. Um, your state probably had some sort of restriction about where you could go. They you know, may or may not have enforced it all that strictly. Um, you were told to wear masks in public places and sometimes even walking around outdoors. Uh, this shook up our lives on a scale that I think we're still coming to terms with. And oh, by the way, I think the psychological effects so this are going to be really deep rooted for a really long time. Uh, and that's, that's, that would be a lot on the plate of any president. Trump. Here's the, the best thing you can say about Trump is that operation. We, we are now vaccinating people because of Operation Warp Speed and that for all the things in the federal government that did not work the way they were supposed to, Operation Warp Speed is going to rank as one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of the United States government. Absolutely. 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 Right. And that's you know, like I like think in, in March they were saying a year if we're lucky. Yep. Maybe more than a year. Fastest time we time between isolating a particular uh, virus or, or pathogen. And getting the, the vaccine was four years. Now, we, we had more people, more bright minds all around the world working on this than anybody else in history. So we knew it would be pretty fast. And we knew that we really needed to find a vaccine because we needed to get back to something resembling normal life as quickly as possible. You can only tell Americans to stay home for so long. You only tell people around the world to stay home for so long. And lo and behold, here we are. It is mid-December and the first vaccines are going into the arms of Americans. It's an amazing accomplishment. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is everything else. I, I, <laughs> one thing I think is... Is that all? Yeah, yeah that could be the, the very short version. Um, the, there are some mistakes in the federal government, like when the first FDA test didn't work. Look, it's not like Donald Trump is in a white coat back there working with Bunsen burners and coming up with the first round of FDA tests, right? There's certain things... The FDA and other parts of the federal government didn't get right. That's not his fault. Um, his rhetoric is the one thing that he totally controls. And Trump's constantly saying, it's going to disappear. It's going to be it's going to be a miracle someday like that. That, that was a serious. And I think it's really weird that a president who was known for being a germaphobe and for being vehemently opposed to China did not react <laughs> right. at all. You know, uh, did not go to DEFCON 1. I mean, metaphorically. Uh, over this and instead kept insisting it's going to go away, it's not that bad, refused to wear a mask for so long, et cetera, et cetera. It was really bizarre that Trump did not respond that way. And by the way, I think that's probably in the end why he lost the election. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I definitely think you're right there. Um, the, the fascinating thing going forward, and I've been meaning to, to bring this up on the show, and I, I've waited the last few weeks till I could kind of compile some of my thoughts. <laughs> but uh, And I guess this is assuming that I guess we probably should not be assuming this, but this is just let, let's let's just pretend we live in a universe where Donald Trump is certainly not going to run for re-election in 2024. Um, mm-hmm. I honestly, I'd, I'd probably give it a better than 50 50 shot. He, he does run again, but let's just say he mm-hmm. doesn't. Um, the fight over the future of the GOP is going to be fascinating. It mm-hmm. really is. I mean, both tactically and and philosophically and on policy and and. For where I'm sitting, and let me know if you agree or disagree, I think the two areas that I really want the GOP 
to to fully adopt the the Trump doctrine, to to adopt what they've learned from Trump and and pick up the torch and run with it, are one on Middle East policy, and two on the Republican Party's relationship to the press. I mm. think I think the the progress in the Middle East is undeniable. ISIS is gone. Iran is in shambles economically. Obviously, the the four peace deals with with Israel and and Arab states. I mean. <laughs> Heck, man, I, I never thought I'd see that. Certainly not all of all of this, like an avalanche, all coming all at once. Um, and then, and then on the press side, I, I mean, it's it's not getting any better. And and one of two things are going to happen with the press going forward in these next four years. Either they're going to return to the see no evil, hear no evil, <laughs> Obama years model, where they just basically just take four years off of practicing journalism, or they go full. Chinese Communist Party style state-run media, and I, I don't know which one they're gonna do. And to be quite, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but not really. I mean, if you look at how they protected Joe Biden mm. this year, ah, I mean, I'm leaning towards the latter. As, as scary as that sounds, so I, I, those are two areas that you can't go back. You, you can't go back to the party of, of Mitt Romney and, and and George Bush and the nice guy, compassionate conservatism stuff. Like that's not gonna work in a the Middle East and b. Uh, in the Republican Party's relationship to the press, I, what what do you think? Do you agree with me there? Um, that those are two fascinating arguments that I probably am, I'm going to think through in the course of this answer. Nope, got to give me um, an answer right now, Jen. Yeah, no, because one of the things that I think is there the the 2020 election results are really kind of fascinating, intriguing because. Yes, Biden won the election, but by and large, Democrats down ticket did not win what they thought they were going to win. Right. And in some cases had some massive disappointments. And one of the great ironies is that we've had this uh, four years of being assured that President Trump is a racist. President Trump is a xenophobe. President Trump is sexist. And then, at least according to the early exit polls that I'd seen, uh, the only demographics that Donald Trump did not improve his numbers from <laughs> 2016 yeah. was white men. Amazing. Yeah, and I, as a white man, I'm tired of the man pushing me down. No, uh, <laughs> but you know, but this great irony is that, like, this is one of the reasons people would say, "Oh, it's not just that Trump is so terrible; it's that he's ruining the image of the Republican Party in in the eyes of African Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans, and women, and and all that stuff." And and in fact, no, that's not <laughs> that did not happen. And the other intriguing thing is that if you wanted to say the future of the Republican Party is Trumpism, establishment Republicanism is dead. And, you know, the, the the Republican Party is a personality cult, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then the down ticket Republicans shouldn't have done better. Right. Down ticket Republicans should have done. You shouldn't have seen Susan Collins winning her state by a sizable margin when Trump was losing the state or at least losing the, the, the broader state. He did win that one um, congressional district, second congressional district in Maine. Um, you shouldn't have seen in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, the Republican House member winning uh, return to office, Ben Sass win by more the state by more votes than anybody else, and yet Trump lost that uh, congressional district around Omaha. Um, various other facts. The, the you know the, the irony is like one of the reasons most Republicans don't feel awful about this, or at least I don't feel awful, is that not only did they manage to win a bunch of Senate seats that they weren't you know it didn't look like Tom Tillis was going to be a safe bet in North Carolina. Um, it, not only you know. They, one a whole uh, house seats. It's now you know I think the thinnest house majority. Republicans are for like two twelve, two thirteen. Uh, winning back the house in twenty two looks very possible. Yep. Um, and they did that. You know, they gained those house seats. By by the way, on the backs of candidates who were in. You know, we, I believe every one of them was either a woman, 
a minority, or a veteran, or some combination of those three. Lo and behold, those are good candidates. Those are good traits to have as mm -hmm. you're uh, running for those House seats. Um, you know, this the Republican Party, for having lost the presidency, and you'd always much rather have the presidency than not have the presidency, by and large is in pretty good shape. The other thing I noticed is that all of the gubernatorial elections, they were, you know, they were generally they're in red states. There were not a ton of really competitive ones this year. But Republicans generally outperformed how they usually do in those red states. Um, the one exception was uh, North Carolina, where Roy Cooper was reelected, and even that one, polling-wise, he was up by you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 points. It didn't look like it was going to be close. Cooper won by four points. Even, you know, even the, the, the dead-ender, the, the Republican who was not supposed to have much of a chance. Uh, and the Republicans picked up a bunch of uh, uh, you know, uh, other offices in, in North Carolina. So, you know, the Republican Party, the, 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 back after 2000, one of the, the philosophies I've taken into this has been, if this is the bottom for the Republican Party, this is really not that bad. No, not at all. Right, you know that this is you still have you still have a good chance of keeping the Senate. You have a very close House. You still have a whole bunch of governorships, and the you know Democrat who beat you know, who won Joe Biden ran on a platform of I am not Donald Trump. Right. He did not win a sweeping mandate for anything other than not being Donald Trump. Well, and and, no and he ran also he ran on the platform of I'm not Bernie Sanders. Right, which exactly. gives you Social, hope. Yeah. yeah, it gives you hope that maybe there could be some kind of future for the Democratic Party that isn't outright socialist. You know. Yeah, the Angela Spanbergers of the world, or sorry, Abigail Spanberger, in uh, a congresswoman from Virginia, uh, had that infamous conference call where she was screaming at her colleagues, "Never say the, you have never use the word socialist again. Never say abolish the police again." Um, you know, they are, or defund the police again. Like, you know, there are a bunch of Democrats who recognize that their, you know, far left rhetoric freaked people out and, you know, that, that very well could have lost this election. It came, it came within like, what, I believe, you know, 42,000 votes in four states, right? That's, you know, that this was not a, a, you know, yes, I'm good for Joe Biden. He won 80 million votes, uh, more than, I think it's up to 82 million votes. That's a lot. That shows that there was a, there was a fairly vehement, Hey, we don't want more of this voice coming from from the country. But in terms of all those swing states, he did not win by by a massive margin. Um, so contemplating your 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 takes there on on the Middle East, actually, I think you're you're correct. I think the uh, the the appetite for nation building, the appetite for spreading democracy, is pretty uh, minimal. And, and it's also like you know, Brady, we we should you know can't ignore the fact that. ISIS really isn't there anymore. Right. I mean, it exists as a social movement. They're sure there are guys who are calling themselves ISIS who would like to stab people in Europe and blow things up and stuff like that. But by and large, we don't worry about ISIS anymore that much. That's, yeah, that's I mean, a, that's, you know, they had a caliphate the size of the state of Ohio, and now they're down to a couple towns in Syria, a couple towns in Iraq. That's just about it. Yeah, and this is... You know, back after 9-11, people said, how do you define victory? How can you have a war on terror and Terrorism is a, is a concept, it's a tool, it's not a group, you know, and the, the observation is that if you're, if you're not living in fear, if you're not, if you wake up every day and you're worried about somebody coughing on you, but you're not worried about somebody blowing up your office building, assuming you're going into an office building, and maybe you aren't, <laughs> but if you don't fear terrorism every day, that's victory. That, that is, that is how, that is how you win. Um, and that is, and so we're in that state. So I think at this point, you're, you know, the, the one area where Biden has given Trump any credit, and it is, it is you know, begrudging, 
<laughs> it is minuscule. I'll tell he you how it... you know, Biden does not dwell on this, but he does say that these you know peace deals between Israel and the Arab states are uh, a good thing. Now, I think I, Biden, out of sheer stubbornness, would love to get the Iran deal reinstated, which would be a major mistake. And would you know, I just, on the one hand, it would reverse all the progress we've made regarding Iran. On the other hand, I believe that a big factor in these Israeli-Arab um, warmth and reapproachment to each other is driven by the threat from Iran. So I, I don't know if that will necessarily even like, you know, further the fact that the Israelis and Arab states look at each other and say, well, look, we don't always like each other, but we live with each other, whereas the Iranians, they are the real danger to all of us, and they're going to take over the whole region if we don't, uh, if we're not careful here. Right. I just think there's so many areas um, that that both factions within the GOP, the the establishment types and, and the, the, the hardcore Trump Trump train guys, I think they can both learn a lot from each other. Like I mean, the, the, the mm. hardcore Trump supporters, I, like the, the GOP establishment is not going away, and you don't really want it to go away. I mean, most of the major accomplishments by the Trump presidency uh, were, were, were because of the, the partnership between Trump and Mitch McConnell. And Mitch, Mitch McConnell may be the most influential Republican since Reagan. Yeah, you know, you, know, you look at how he's I don't know. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, um, and then also the... Um, the the establishment needs needs to learn from Trump as well. I mean, there obviously the the Middle East, the the adversarial nature that that he treats the press, which I absolutely love. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But and and also, I, I think the Repu- the Republican Party needs some of the outsider, defiant, tough guy politics. I, I really do because I, I think the crown jewel of Trump's presidency, I think the the most important thing he did in office is to refuse to give in to the calls to expand the power of the federal government during this pandemic. Okay, mm-hmm. I, any any Democrat, any Democratic president, if, if Hillary Clinton would have won in 2016, any Democrat and a lot of Republicans, a lot of a lot of Republicans with less of a backbone than Trump would have been willing to tear up the Constitution this year. It would have issued a, a national mask mandate or considered nationalizing industries, right? <laughs> like the, the airline mm-hmm. industry, right? Or... Uh, you know the 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 cruise lines or something or or heck I mean grocery stores were empty Jim for, yeah. for a month there I mean nationalizing the 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 farming and like we, we it could have gotten really ugly it got ugly a lot of people died it's awful this was a crap year but for the future of constitutional governance you know the in in terms yeah. of the founding principles ah, Trump's defiance really saved the Constitution in a lot of ways I mean I don't know even even if let's say a, a moderate like a john Kasich type of republican mm. w- would john Kasich have stood up to anthony fauci i i don't know I, I i don't know if if john Kasich would have been running the government or if anthony fauci would have been running the government and and trump had the backbone to stand up to the left and to the press and to the everybody even people within his own party and say no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna rip up the constitution because people are scared and i think his refusal to do that is is the crown jewel of his presidency he had every opportunity to grow the size and scope of the federal government, and he didn't do it. And I, it's because, look, Donald Trump isn't, he's never read Mises or Hayek or Milton Friedman or any of these guys, but he has just an inherent, you know, primal love of capitalism and free markets that he can't really explain, but uh, he does. And so he kind of has resisted a lot of the, the push from the left in these ways, if, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And, you know, the coronavirus pandemic was probably about as intense a stress test yes. for the Constitution and our system of government as you possibly could imagine, and in part because it was a genuine emergency. Now, if you study the history of, of you know, any dictatorship and, and democracy, 
you know, there are variations, but very often it involves there is some sort of emergency that is either genuine or is faked, right? Or, or that is some sort of, you know, provocation or false flag or whatever, you know. And because of that emergency, the government assumes emergency powers. And the state of emergency is, an, you know, and because of the state of the emergency, you can't do certain things. It could be criticism of the government. It could be curfews. It could be, you know, usually it involves some sense of uh, freedom of expression, criticism of the government, uh, police powers, uh, separation of powers, all that kind of stuff. Um, everything from, you know, Nazi Germany to Egypt after under Mubarak to the Galactic Republic with Jar Jar Binks. You know, you want to go down <laughs> the list of any one of those institutions, right? And in this case, we had a genuine emergency where if the government did nothing, the virus was going to spread further and more people were going to die. And we saw this in a whole bunch of governors who, who basically stepped in and said, well, you know, not only am I going to shut down businesses, you know, Gretchen Whitmer is going to cut down on whether you can buy seeds and stuff and these kind of ludicrous, you know, and Mario, there's, there's showing my age there, Andrew Cuomo. Well, you can sell food, but you got to sell food at the bars and this is a substantial meal and this is not that kind of crazy stuff. What they're doing out in California where outdoor dining is considered as dangerous as indoor dining. Um, you can see the temptations of power and all of these folks who very often are exempting themselves from their own restrictions that they're putting on others, as we've seen, uh, this temptation of, aha, this is my moment to tell people how to live their lives. This is my moment to stop this, to save them from themselves and their own bad judgment and their own freedom to, to make those bad decisions and stuff. Just backtracking a bit on um, when you said about what the, the, the establishment and what the MAGA crowd can learn from each other. I think the best aspect of the establishment, and, and of the two, I definitely lean much more in the establishment direction, is the recognition that government at its heart is about law, it's about regulations, it's about policy, and that details matter, right? All this stuff that seems boring to a lot of folks, the establishment recognizes that's what makes government government. And if you control that, and if you influence that, it's a very big deal. And maybe the voice of the establishment that I sometimes have echoed is like the idea that government is not a show. It's not the circus. It's not there to entertain you. Now, what the MAGA crowd and what the Trump supporters have undoubtedly for recognized is that politics is a show and that in order to engage people, you do need to put on a show. You do need to make it interesting. You do need to make it dramatic and exciting and uh, surprise them. And and to say, you know, and Trump, there, there is a, when I, I, I was... One of the reasons I was, was I was fairly certain Pennsylvania was going to be close, and I couldn't just you know dismiss Trump's possibility uh, in Pennsylvania was earlier this fall. I went to Bucks County, where my in-laws live, and uh, it's like mid around Columbus Day, like mid-October. And Brady, you would have thought Bucks County was celebrating a holiday called Trumpmas, <laughs> because not never mind yard signs. Yeah. People had their Trump flags, their thin blue line flags. They're uh, just, it felt like they, you know, everything, every conceivable Trump related decoration was there. And, and it wasn't just that, oh, I support this candidate. Trump is now like a lifestyle. Right, <laughs> it, it is right. now this utter, complete way in which people identify themselves. Um, and that is a connection that, that, you know, one should not be underestimated. And I think would make Donald Trump a, as, as big a player in Republican politics as he wants to be for as long as he wants to be. Um, but you know, that, that's something that a lot of people, we, we could argue about whether that's healthy or, or whether that's the way you should feel in a constitutional Republic. But the factor is there that in, in many people's minds, he is their hero. 
He is their champion. He is their guy. And when he gets into the, you know, steps into the arena and gets into a fight, they are cheering for him as loudly and more as loudly and intensely as, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, um, they, they, they feel identified. And when he gets criticized, they feel identified. And I hear that from certain readers and certain listeners, you know, that, that, that there is this enormous um, that and that that turns into uh, political capital that turns into an ability to, you know, the, the policy stuff I just talked about. You can influence that when people when you can get people to pay attention to a topic and say, hey, this is really important and this is how I want the law to be. And so that's um, if you can merge those two, the Republican Party could have, you know, uh, I want to say we, we don't we don't immunitize the eschaton and we don't build utopia here, <laughs> um, but they could really push thing, push the ball in their direction in a big way in the years to come. But obviously there's a great deal of tension there. And I, don't, I think that. Uh, those different worldviews are very likely to cause, you know, that, that tension is probably never going to go away completely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I know you, we're way over time, as per usual, and I apologize for that, Jim. But real quick, before we get to your new book and before I let you go, I do have to briefly mention, because I haven't really touched on it too heavily in the podcast yet, um, some of Joe Biden's cabinet appointments. I mean, for people like mm. me who really don't believe Joe Biden will be running the government and <laughs> that his cabinet appointments are, are even more important than they typically would be, you know, under a presidency where the top of the ticket wasn't 80 and in mental decline. You know, I, everybody knows what I'm talking about. We don't need to get into that. But mm-hmm. hey, obviously, I wasn't expecting much. <laughs> but uh, look, it looks like uh, we're going to get the worst parts of the Obama years. A lot of uh, Obama retreads from Susan Rice on down. Um Yikes. I don't know. Yikes. Yeah. I, I, what, what are your thoughts on some of the names coming out thus far? I, when he picked Tony Blinken over Susan Rice, I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be good. This right. is going to be um, because, you know, Susan Rice, obviously infamous for the Benghazi yeah. uh, statements and, and all that kind of stuff. And my attitude was, OK, you know, Biden realizes he's got to get these people through either a Republican controlled Senate or an evenly split Senate. Um, he's not going to look he's going to try to avoid stupid fights, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that was like for the first three or four nominees. You know, Jake Sullivan is not who I would have picked as national security advisor, but he's not crazy, you know. Right. Um, and then you got Neera Tandon, Neera Tandon uh, to run uh, OMV. Neera Tandon was so bad. I was like, okay, there's the designated failure. There's the one who you know is going to be that like you, you know you're gonna, you know at least one person's not going to get confirmed. Every administration has at least one uh, nominee withdraw. So there's the designated bad one designed it almost to be a lightning rod, attract all the criticism. Right. But then Susan Rice came back in charge of domestic policy, Oof. which didn't like I, I it's not just like oh this isn't who I'd want. This is like why are you putting that person there? Because uh, she destroyed a foreign country and now. She wants to destroy this one. I, I, I don't. I don't know. Complete the set. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, we have a veterans secretary nominee who's not a veteran and who's never really worked on it. Um, <laughs> the uh, nominee to be health and human services secretary has never worked in health policy before. Um, the uh, you know you could go down the list and you're, uh, Marsha Fudge specifically said she did not want uh, HUD, housing and urban development. She really wanted agriculture. Because I guess her district has people, you know, uh, has farmers in it. And she's like, you know, and instead she got selected for HUD. <laughs> um, I, it, it almost felt like they were putting names in a hat and just yeah. putting, you know, and, and assigning them at random. I know. And that's, this- that's what I was about to say, Jim. And there's always a little bit of that. I mean, there's always, like in the, the Trump cabinet, Ben Carson comes to mind. You know, they're, yeah. they're friends. They're very friendly. <laughs> Trump really liked 
Ben Carson. Yeah. And, and Dr. He put Carson a... lives in a house. So <laughs> yes, he's, yes. he's qualified to be <laughs> run housing. Yes. But it's not, but it's like every, it's really, it's like they just put the names in a hat, shook it up, and just randomly appointed Democratic political insiders to cabinet posts. It's like, oh my I goodness. Mean, Pete Buttigieg is alleged, you know, apparently the nominee to be Secretary of Transportation. I guess he, <laughs> he uses transportation, ergo he yes. is uh, qualified. Like, As I, a driver's the, license. Yeah, like, I, okay. I, you know, again, is he, is he going to be a disaster? Probably not. In part of it, because how much can you mess up the Secretary of Transportation? <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> you know, completely, like, this isn't an important note for the show today, but I do have to bring this up regarding Pete Buttigieg yeah. as a transportation secretary. Because it does get, we talked about how the press is going to treat the Biden administration early in the show. But this is, I think, giving us a little glimpse of how the press is going to treat the next four years. Um, I wasn't familiar with this guy, but his name is Adam Wren. Uh, he's an editor for Politico. And he wrote a piece about how Biden had selected Pete Buttigieg for, uh, to, to head the Department of Transportation. This is his tweet. He felt the need to tweet this. Uh, let me pull it up. Felt the need to tweet this this morning. Uh, quote, fun fact, one of Pete's favorite board games is Ticket to Ride, a game that involves collecting trains and claiming rail routes through the states across the U.S. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> thanks, you know, thanks, man. I've played a lot of, of Halo, so I think I should yeah. run uh, Space Force. Okay, yeah. like, what? <laughs> first of all, fun fact, most facts are not that fun. <laughs> Secondly... Oh, oh you, you know, would Monopoly have if he if, if Monopoly was his favorite game? Would you put him in charge of Treasury? Is that how that works? So. I, I think Fudge is, uh, uh, you know, she should run HUD because she's probably played Sims. <laughs> I mean, what, like, what are we doing? If if you've played some Minecraft, maybe you should run the Department of the Interior. I mean, <laughs> come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, Veterans Affairs. Since the, you know, it's a, yeah. So like, are, are you know, in most of these cases, it, my attitude is unless the can, the nominee is utterly unqualified, has some sort of major scandal, or there's good reason to think that they will uh, be a disastrous manager, the president should get their, uh, get their nominees. I, I think if I had to stop anybody, it would probably be Becerra uh, at, at HHS. He's a partisan hatchet man who, uh, and I don't, I think you need some medical experience if you're going to run HHS, HHS during a pandemic. Call me crazy. So, um, but I think, you know, Biden will get most of these folks and, Keep in mind that for most of these people, this is you know the confirmation fight is the last time you're going to hear their names. Yeah, most cabinet positions are akin to the uh, federal witness protection program uh, <laughs> for for most politicians. So don't worry that oh Pete Buttigieg, this the, the Department of Transportation is one more step on his road to the presidency. Nah, I don't think so. No, I think it, you'll forget I, about Mayor Pete. And yeah, yeah, I, I'm actually glad. I, I'm I'm glad Biden stuck him in the cabinet somewhere. Out of all the the Democratic candidates that ran. Uh, this time around, I think I, just the the smarminess, the smugness, made mm. him my least favorite. <laughs> and and as a, a, a devout Christian, the you know misuse of quoting scripture also really got yeah. Really. He, he has an amazing ability to irk people who agree with him. Oh my goodness! Keep that in mind. Like they, 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 even the folks who are Democrats are not uh, right. So. Jim, before I let you go, obviously, uh, Between Two Scorpions was so great that you decided to write a sequel. Uh, you got to tell us about the brand new novel available right now, Hunting Four Horsemen. Sure. Um, a couple of years back, I wrote Between Two Scorpions. I'd always wanted to write a thriller. Uh, I should, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, Brad Thor, Tom Clancy, you know, Michael Crichton, all that kind of stuff. And this, uh, that one was about terrorism and the idea of what would happen if terrorists who really understood America 
uh, tried to launch attacks specifically designed to tear at our social fabric. But hey, Brady, what are the odds that our social fabric could be torn to shreds by um, uh, a menace from beyond our shores? Impossible. You know, we, we've never Impossible. Seen uh, and then this one, uh, I'd had an idea, a different idea for a sequel and had a, you know, a draft written and was having people give me feedback. And then the pandemic hit. And what was going on in the real world felt much more uh, consequential and dramatic you know, than anything I had in this, this thrill. So I started thinking about what, what would my characters be doing as, you know, uh, during the pandemic. And, and I couldn't really come up with a good story idea set during that. Because then I thought about, like, what's the world going to be like? when we're on the other side of this pandemic and what kind of threats are we going to be worrying about and what is, what's the state of the world going to be? And so hunting for horsemen is about my team. It's about, you know, it's set in the spring after the pandemic. I don't say which year, but clearly it's, you know, good news is it looks like it's going to be this coming spring. And the team hears about a virologist who is going around to the world's rogue states and saying, well, we've just seen what a dangerous virus can do. Imagine if I could create for you a virus that would only target a particular genetic sequence. And Brady, I regret to inform you the technology to do this is very real. I'd be very surprised if nobody started looking down this angle. Oh, by the way, back in the 1980s, these, someone went to the South African military attache in London and said that he could develop a bacteria that would only attack people with significant levels of melanin. Um, the South African government did not pursue that offer, suspecting that it was a trap or might have been somebody trying to con them, or at least that's what the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was able to find. But the idea of engineering a biological weapon that targets only particular groups is indeed real, and that's the, the crux of the plot of this story. Uh, my hero is finding out somebody's making this offer, trying to find it, and trying to stop it before the worst happens in setting off an era of ethnic bioweapons and biological warfare. So uh, some scary stuff, but because I write it, there's a lot of funny stuff in it, a lot of, you know, human drama, characterization, blowing up bad guys, all the kind of good stuff you want to find in a thriller. Can't wait to read it. Can't wait to read it. Can I just, add, just as a, I'm a songwriter, so I'm a, I'm a storyteller to some extent myself, and I've, I've been meaning to ask you this, because I, I know, you know, we talked off air, I knew you were writing this book, um, you know, before the, the pandemic hit, how weird was it, you know, when entering into this pandemic and, and kind of coming to the realization, I have to rewrite this book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, like that does seem, you know, I, I've been in, in the middle of writing songs where something will happen in my life or something where it's like, all right, I got to change this up. It, it seems mm. weak. It seems irrelevant. You know, I need to do better. It, how Just as an artist, how, how bizarre was that this spring? That, that was very much the the vibe of it um, and, and kind of recognizing that I was ready to take it to my agent and say, hey, I got another one done. And just recognizing that it just wouldn't feel consequential. Right. Um, it's very, it, you know, this is a little bit unrelated, but if you go back into the season two of 24. I know, I know it well, yes. Okay, so this is the year where uh, bad guys are trying, you know, there, there's a terrorist attack and Jack Bauer has to stop them, which is more or less the plot of every season. But one of the storylines is that there's fake evidence suggesting that three Middle Eastern countries, and they never say which ones, but mm -hmm. we can all kind of guess it's probably Iran, Iraq, and Syria, uh, are behind the series of terrorist attacks and that the U.S. is going to um, bomb, it was going to launch a war against all three simultaneously uh, until Jack can find the, the real evidence that disproves it. And this was filmed in 2002 and was airing in 2003. And so the episodes were airing trying to prevent the U.S. from attacking Iraq 
while the U.S. was actually attacking Iraq. And there's an interview with Kiefer Sutherland where he just kind of, he doesn't like dwell on it, but he kind of says, yeah, I think it hurt the show that our plot mirrored real world events and uh, too closely, right? Yeah. Um, or, or just was in, in, in direct conflict to, to real world events. In this one, um, one of the things I think it's been, the, early on, remember people were gathering in groups and it was kind of like, we're not going to be afraid of this virus. And you, you, know, you saw people saying that's not really how it works just spreads whenever it gets the opportunity. And I think that was that nine, post 9-11, we're not going to let the terrorists intimidate us mentality, right? There's this, we, you know, it's e in some ways, a threat is easier to deal with when there's a person, when there's, when there's a face we can punch, right. you know, when, right. when, there's, when there's a face to what we hate. And, you know, with this, well, I think one of the challenges of this pandemic is that we just have these uh, microscopic to the human eye, you know, floating green globules with the little red hooks floating around. And it's hard to, to focus your energy on something you can't see. So this story, you know, takes everything that frightens us about viruses and getting sick and, and plagues and contagions and all that kind of stuff and applies it with a person and says, what if there was somebody who wanted to make this happen? What if there's somebody who wanted to use this as a weapon now that we've seen how much it can bring society to a screeching halt? Um, so a little cathartic in that sense um, to, to create. And then just kind of think about like who would want to make money on this, uh, which states would want to do it. And I, I tried to avoid every, all the usual suspects are in there. But I tried to think about a group that I think is dangerous uh, and that has gotten only intermittent attention in the last couple of years, even though they are probably um, they're, they're one that for let's just say for ideological reasons, people don't like to think about too much. Uh, and also there's like one chapter in there which talks a lot about China and its biological weapons programs that basically the subtext of that one is here's why Jim didn't write a whole book about the Wuhan labs. Well, it sounds fascinating and terrifying at the same time, Jim. And uh, also, I did not know that <laughs> uh, that any of this happened in the 80s where people were trying to develop, uh, you know, viruses to to affect only certain people that's new information to me so that yeah, may, good times good yeah, yeah that's absolutely terrifying so jim where can everybody I'm pick up the parties as you can tell <laughs> right where can everybody pick up the book where can everybody follow you online uh subscribe to the morning jolt and the three martini lunch and all the plugs okay so uh hunting for a horseman is being published by amazon which surprise surprise means it's only available at amazon uh, it is available in both Kindle and paperback forms, as is the same for um, Between Two Scorpions, the uh, the first book. Uh, you can find me at Twitter, at Jim Garrity, J-I-M-G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. Don't blame me for the spelling, blame my ancestors. Uh, and, of course, I write at National Review, The Morning Jolt, every day, and in the corner just about every day. Everybody follow Jim. He's great. Everybody pick up Hunting for Horsemen right now. Everybody subscribe to Through Martini Launch and The Morning Jolt. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks.